You don't have to be too friendly either, though. Um, I'll do, um, I'll make a two-fold test today. I'll be very interdisciplinary. There's one test about, about international relations theory. That's the norm selection one. And there's one test pertaining to the medical sciences because I'm quite sick and I do hope that all the pills that I took are going to be enough for me and my voice to last for something like 45 minutes. Um, the medical test will be quite straightforward. If I lose my voice, then the test is not passed, so you'll realize that. Um, therefore, I can come to my, to, my, to my norm selection straight away because I think there'll be a lot to discuss. Um, now, why am I interested in norm selection? In uh, beginning in the late 1980s, actually, there's been some kind of a renaissance of norms in international relations. So norms were not, were not necessarily always um, defined uh, anymore as epiphenomenal, epiphenomenal to material interests, um, but norms were actually taken seriously. Now, if we take norms seriously, then the question obviously becomes, where do they come from? How do actors come to embrace certain norms and not others? And this is what I'm interested in this talk. And when I speak about norm selection, by the way, then I mean um, the, uh, the, uh, the adoption of norms by actors and the internalization. And when we look at the literature, then there are basically two camps. There's a constructivist camp, and they write about norm selection and internalization, and they rely on the logic of appropriateness. And then there's a rationalist camp, and they rely on the logic of consequences, and they usually don't use the word norm selection, but they write about norm compliance. And um, what I want to do now is I want to suggest a synthesis of these two perspectives. And uh, as a very brief summary of my overall argument, I'm going to contend that provided a couple of conditions are met, and most of my talk will deal with these conditions, States select norms in three ideal typical stages. And the first stage I label innovative argumentation, the second persuasive argumentation, the third compromise. Innovative argumentation addresses why advocates actually come to initiate an advocacy in the first place. And I will argue that, um, that they, will, they, they, they initiate an advocacy if the environment in which they are embedded changes, and changes quite dramatically. Um, persuasive argumentation, I will contend, um, is all about the message, and, um, and I will outline three modes of reasoning that convey a persuasive message. Abstract reasoning, comparative reasoning, and appropriateness reasoning. And, um, and then I will, I will contend that um, persuasion may be as successful as we could possibly imagine. Nevertheless, there will always be actors that remain unpersuaded by what we say, and uh, nevertheless, I think um, the power of an argument is not only about persuasion, but uh, an argument can also sway those uh, who are not persuaded, provided that, um, that the argument inflicts costs, has been, su has been successful in, in, uh, in convincing a broad audience, and uh, in, that way, in that way actors come to adopt the norm even if they are not persuaded. And what I just talked about uh, with those two logics of action, innovative argumentation, persuasive argumentation, tend more towards the logic of appropriateness, whereas the compromise obviously tends more towards the logic of consequences. Um, let me start the, the main part of my talk with uh, a, a brief overview of the literature. And um, it's quite common for us always to bash what's, what's been written so far. I want to do it differently. I want to praise, actually, at least in two ways I want to praise the literature. Um, the first one, there's an advocacy literature norm selection. And I think that advocacy literature shows to us quite clearly that persuasion matters. And more than that, it also shows how persuasion works. It works with, ad with advocates linking what is already established to something that is new. So linking the old and the new. And it's all about this fit. And uh, I think the second lead that the current literature provides to us is um, there is a constructivist camp and there is a rationalist camp. And unfortunately, they don't talk much to one another. But what they do show to us is that both logics of action matter. So they really, show empirical, they really um, give empirical evidence that we have to take both seriously. Now. Departing from these two, from these two uh, leads, um, I, want to, I want to get into more detail um, about, about norm selection processes. 
And, um, and I'm going to ask four questions, and I, I, will, I will try to convince you that the added value of my, of my norm selection mechanism is actually that it speaks about these, that it gives plausible answers to these four questions. And the first question is, why do advocates engage in an advocacy in the first place? Because this is something that the advocacy literature, for the most part, does not deal with. So um, advocacy literature is concerned with how persuasion works, but it does not deal with how an advocacy is initiated in the first place. The second question, how are the property, um, what are the properties of a persuasive fit? The advocacy literature stops simply by saying that there has to be a fit between the old and the new. I want to elaborate on that, and I want to, I want to, uh, I want to suggest ways of how this fit actually works. I want to, I want to provide more detail about this insight. And the third one, what domestic processes shape persuasion? Um, the advocacy literature, as much of our theory, black boxes the state. But I think that there are important forces within the state, for example, public opinion, that really matter for norm selection processes. And the fourth question, well, if, logics of, if both logics of action matter, then the question really becomes is how, do, how are they interrelated? Um, because so far, there are simply two camps, and there's not much research into how they're related. Um, I'm going <clears> to <throat> I'm going to try to address these. <clears throat> sorry, I'm going to try to address these questions um, by drawing from argumentation theory and, and from bargaining theory. And I'll start with argumentation theory. And um, the slide here provides an overview of the process of argumentation. And I use a triad of, con of concepts to make this process a bit clearer. Reference criterion, topos, and modes of reasoning. Since Aristotle's art of rhetoric, the topos has been central to argumentation theory. Arguments link an advocated idea to common places. This is what topos means. In this way, the new, what is argued, becomes intelligible in light of the old, what is already established. Um, the Munich analogy, for example, appeasement, Munich 1938, is a very, is a very pervasive topos in U.S. discourse on war and peace. Now, I don't think that actors can simply choose randomly whatever topos they want to choose. I think that the pool of possible topos is finite. Only a limited number of collective ideas are taken for granted and help us make the world intelligible to ourselves. And I refer to this reservoir of possible topoi as reference criterion. The advocacy literature does not use this term reference criterion, but implicitly in the literature is that the reference criterion is all about identity, usually understood as an identity narrative, and about already established norms. And I add a third ideational force to it. And, uh, and that force I label episteme. The episteme is a fruitful conceptualization of a worldview. It enables us to see certain things, and it makes it impossible for us to conceive of others. I define the episteme as a set of fundamental and taken-for-granted beliefs about what is and how what is is causally connected. Now, this is highly abstract. Um, to give you um, an illustrative but rather appalling example, um, social Darwinism, for example, is an episteme. And it's composed of racial categories and their ranking in terms of worthiness, success, and potential. And based on this lens, social Darwinists construct a world that revol revolves around racial supremacy, racial purity, and violence. Now, how can the topoi be linked to the advocated idea? Um, I think that there are three possibilities, and in those three possibilities, I follow quite closely Nita Crawford. And those three modes of reasoning are abstract reasoning, comparative reasoning, and appropriateness reasoning. The most thoroughly ki studied kind of abstract reasoning is the syllogism. There's a major premise formulating a desired goal, and there's a minor premise that consists of a cause-effect relationship. And then there's the conclusion, inferring the means to achieve the desired goal from the cause-effect relationship. So, for example, the Roman maxim of qui desiderat partem preparat bellum is the conclusion of a syllogism. I want peace. Peace can only be achieved by deterrence. Thus, the conclusion, if I want peace, I have to prepare for war. 
Comparative reasoning involves the equating a phenomenon that is already authoritatively interpreted with something that is new and requires interpretation. Um, and I already mentioned the Munich analogy, and I think that is really one of the most pervasive um, topoi for comparative reasoning in world politics. So for example, um, before the onset of the war against the Iraq, um, there were always comparisons between Hitler and Saddam Hussein, and, uh, and, therefore, and therefore Hussein would have, have, would have to be stopped. Appropriateness reasoning is rule following. And this reasoning was pervasive, again, immediately prior to the launch of the military attack against Iraq. Saddam Hussein grossly violated human rights, and the intervention was constructed to some extent as a humanitarian intervention. Now, based on the process of argumentation that I just described, it is possible to hypothesize on the environment that gives rise to an advocacy. Innovative argumentation is made possible, and this is my big assumption here, by a change of the environment that puts the world upside down for actors. This makes them question the old and think of something new. Two aspects of the environment can have this effect. First, a revolutionary event or series of events. This may be either a catastrophic event, such as a natural disaster or war, or a highly appreciated event, such as a technological breakthrough. And second, a shifting reference criterion, so episteme, identity, and norms, makes actors see a different world. Based on these two forces, it is possible to hypothesize on the extent to which an environment is conducive to innovative argumentation or not. And I think the one that is most conducive is if the change of the reference criteria in the revolutionary event occur at the same time or in a short time sequence. Because in this case, the revolutionary event is the cognitive punch that drives it home to act as something has to change. And the change of the reference criterion provides new clues of how to imagine something new. And um, I don't have to go through, through, through the whole table now, I think, but um, medium high is, uh, if there is if there's a change of the reference criterion, it means I can imagine something new, uh, but there's no revolutionary event, so I don't have the cognitive punch that really forces me to think of something new. What I dealt with so far was only how an advocacy actually starts, what initiates an advocacy, what is the environment that makes it possible. Um, and this slide now is about what makes persuasion successful, what makes an advocacy once it's established successful. <clears throat> and I think that there are three necessary conditions and four facilitating conditions. The necessary conditions are very straightforward, and you can, they are all over in the advocacy literature and in the persuasion literature. Um, one of them, the advocated idea, has to be salient, has to be regarded important by the audience. The idea has to be comprehensible. If it's not comprehensible, we can hardly talk about persuasion. And there has to be a shared reference criterion. I think if there's no shared reference criterion, actors basically talk past one another. The facilitating conditions focus on the actors. Um, I think that privileged access to discourse is a facilitating condition. Um, you can be a bureaucrat in a, in, a, in, a, in a large bureaucratic organization. You can have fantastic ideas, but you might find it quite difficult to get these ideas out in the public. Whereas if you're an influential journalist, let's say, or you're a prime minister, or a president, then it might be way easier for you to get your message across. And the three, the three other conditions relate to the modes of reasoning. The first one about appropriateness reasoning. Argument links idea to institutionalized norms. Um, the second one, argument links idea to key events of the identity narrative and the episteme, that is the comparative reasoning. And then finally, the abstract reasoning, argument links idea to nations longing and episteme. As I mentioned at the beginning of my talk, I think it's quite unlikely that, that an advocacy persuades everyone who has to be persuaded in order to take a decision or in order for, an, or for a norm to be selected. I think there'll always be recalcitrant actors. And um, if we think about that this is the kind of disagreement that is possible now based on the process of argumentation that I outlined, then there are two levels of disagreement. 
One of them is, and that's a very fundamental one, is that those opposing the argument do not share the reference criterion, they do not share the topoi, and therefore they absolutely do not share the link that advocates construct between topoi and the advocated idea. Another kind of disagreement, way less severe, I think, is um, if the, the opponents share the reference criterion, they share the topoi, they might even employ the same topoi for their counter-advocacy, but they do not, they're not persuaded about the link between the advocated idea and the topoi. And, um, and I think that is quite important for reaching a compromise. The power, of a the power of persuasion is not confined simply by making people change their minds, but the power of, of, uh, of an advocacy also involves inflicting costs on those who oppose, who oppose something that has been established as a majority view. So if someone starts an advocacy, and I'm, I'm a political party, and I'm very recalcitrant, and this, this advocacy becomes a majority view, then I'm going to feel it at the elections if, I'm, if, I'm, if I hold on to my counter-advocacy. And my hypothesis here is that recalcitrant actors will yield to the pressure of that majority opinion, but only if they share the reference criterion of the advocacy. Because this makes the this makes this makes the the the, the, um, the disagreement bridgeable. Um, so much about the theory. It was actually a lot of theory already. Um, I want to I want to deal with a case now because um, because I, I take I take uh, Bourdieu quite seriously when when he suggests that we should refrain from doing theoretical theory. So let me try to apply this to a case. Um, the case that I'm interested in is, uh, is Northern Ireland or the Eridentist dispute territorial claim that the Republic of Ireland laid to the uh, United Kingdom for, uh, for more than 50 years. As soon as, and you all know that I just summarized it very quickly, as soon as uh, the, southern, the southern half of Ireland became independent as the Irish Free State, um, the Free State claimed that de jure, legally speaking, Northern Ireland was rightfully part of its territory. And um, then in 1937, the Republic of Ireland gave itself a new constitution. And in Articles 2 and 3 of the Constitution, so right at the beginning, there was the Irredentist claim, de jure, the legal, the legal territory, uh, is, is the whole of the island of Ireland. And in 1998, that claim came, came to an end, and the constitution was changed. And what is quite remarkable about it was changed in the midst of a peace process, Belfast Agreement. And uh, some actors in the Republic of Ireland, they really, they really thought um, that peace agreement is very, very beneficial for us. And, um, and therefore, we can, we, can, we can do away with that claim. Um, the peace agreement then, in many crucial aspects, was not implemented, and to this very day is not implemented. And nevertheless, there's no debate anymore about the Eridentist claim. And the fact that there's no debate more about it anymore is an indicator that, that there's more than simply policy. It's an indicator there's, there's some kind of a normative change involved here. Um, how did I, how did I uh, go about doing research about this? Um, as a very quick overview, it's a three-step analysis. The first one is a thick description of public and elite discourses. That is in order to understand the reference criteria and reconstruct the kind of my environment that, uh, that people were in. The second one is argumentation analysis. And a key about, um, about that argumentation analysis is to show that persuasion actually occurred. And for this, I use two indicators, diffusion and congruence. Diffusion means that, um, that one, one advocate presents an argument, um, top boy modes of reasoning, everything that I outlined, and then another advocate later on advocates exactly the same thing. So the argument in its entirety diffuses. This is what I use as an indicator, and sometimes you can't use that because with public opinion data, let's say you can't do that. In that case, it was basically a correlation. So if the reference criterion was present, if the top boy were present, and, um, and if, uh, if, the, if the persuadees became persuaded without rewards and punishments being offered, then I understood that as persuasion. And the analysis of the compromise um, involves sequencing. I, dis I distinguish three different points in time. At T1, there's this agreement between advocates and counter-advocates. 
between T1 and T2, the costs for the, for the counter advocacy, and advocacy rise. Um, at T2, the, um, there is, uh, there's, uh, there are some kind of concessions offered to the counter advocates, and at T3, the counter advocates yield. They stop their advocacy. Um, slide eight summarizes now in a, in a very, 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 very brief form. Um, research that in my, in my, in my thesis uh, went on and on and on for something like 300 pages. But um, to put it, um, to make it very brief, um, in terms of the reference criterion, so the first step of my, of my research, what happened was there was epistemic change and there was identity change. And um, when, I when, I, in, in, uh, when my analysis started in 1916, there was really, there was a clear-cut orthodoxy. There was basically no dissent. There was what I called the colonial episteme and exclusive identity. With colonial episteme, um, I mean basically an episteme, a lens about nation building, a lens about imagining nations that was quite common in, con common in continental Europe. So nations are ancient. Um, nations are homogenous. The, the borders of nations are taken for granted. Many Irish actually thought they're, they're drawn by God because they have this island. <clears throat> and, I, and I label it colonial because there was a colonial twist to an island because of its history. Um, the strong belief that nations need to have their own, their, own, uh, their own states in order to preserve their authentic self um, was very much geared towards the United Kingdom and the colonial past. And that colonial episteme confines the imagination of, uh, of what the Irish nation is to an ancient Gaelic and Catholic nation. And that ancient Gaelic and Catholic nation was exclusive in two ways. It was exclusive internationally, um, intermingling with other nations was seen as a threat to the authentic self. And, um, and, and the, particular, the particular other in this regard obviously was the United Kingdom. And, um, and, the, and the identity was also exclusive in terms of what it meant to be Irish. Unionism was, was seen as diametrically opposed to being Irish. And um, what happened then over time, I don't have to go into this now in much detail, what happened over time is that this orthodoxy weakened. And um, an, al an alternative surfaced more and more that's the idea of Europe and inclusive nationalism. With the idea of Europe, I mean, um, basically, the, the taken-for-granted lesson that all the disasters of Europe, um, um, infighting between European states, um, Holocaust, that all of this happened really because European nations have not understood that standing apart causes disaster. And, um, and, um, and the first politician, just as a side remark, the first politician who introduced this, this, this view that standing apart causes disaster was actually strongly affiliated with the European unification movement. And, um, and the, the idea of Europe then made, um, made nation builders see a very different kind of Irishness. Um, they made, um, they made, it made them see an inclusive nationalism. Inclusive, again, in two ways. Inclusive in the way that internationally, Ireland ought not to stand entirely on its own. And inclusive also in the way that unionism more and more became defined as a segment of Irish culture. And um, when my analysis ended, 1998, then the idea of Europe and uh, the inclusive nationalism had assumed a kind of hegemony that the old orthodoxy had in the 1960s. Now, what kind of repercussions does, did this have for, for argumentation? Um, in, the, in the early 1970s, the, the, the advocacy for withdrawing the Eridentist claim started. And um, the advocates drew all the time from, uh, from precisely the alternative here, from the idea of Europe and, um, and from inclusive nationalism. Next slide is going to show you a bit more in detail how they did that. The troubles, those of you who have done, uh, who know something about Ireland might, might be familiar with it, it's a kind of euphemistic uh, label for, for violence in Northern Ireland, especially, especially Bloody Sunday. And it was shortly after Bloody Sunday that the, that the innovative argumentation actually started. 
And this now summarizes the, uh, the argumentation that was presented by, by the advocates. And there were all three kinds of reasoning. It was abstract reasoning, comparative reasoning, and appropriateness reasoning. And the abstract reasoning um, combined the longing for unity and the idea of Europe in order to make a case for the territorial status quo norm. Now, the idea of Europe provides, in a way, um, a way out of the irredentist problem. Because uh, if I postulate that borders, nation-state borders, or to lose their significance more and more in an evolutionary process, then the problem of border disputes in, in, the, long, in, the, lo in the long time frame actually disappears, or at least it becomes less severe. Um, another, another mode of reasoning, comparative reasoning, um, took the troubles as a historical lesson and uh, as a historical lesson, what happens if you, if you tell a portion of your nation, in that case unionists, that you're not part of us, and uh, if you postulate, as the evidentist claim did, that we want to take over here no matter what you want. And the appropriateness reasoning, quite straightforward, connected the peaceful resolution of disputes as a topos with the territorial status quo norm. And that was often um, intertwined a little bit with a glimpse into the identity narrative, um, juxtaposing the IRA's um, violent attempt to establish Irish unity with the attempt how the Irish people actually ought to do it, they ought to do it peacefully. And, um, and this kind of advocacy was very, very successful, remarkably successful, if one imagines that for decades, the Eridentist claim was an orthodox claim, um, a, 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 a key element of the nationalist credo in the Republic of Ireland. By 1992, there was a majority of the public who was in favor of getting rid of that claim. Um, that alone would not, have, would not have made it possible for the Republic to renounce the Eridentist claim. Um, because in 1998, this party, Athena Fall, which was uh, traditionally very opposed to getting rid of the claim, um, was in power. And in 1998, Athena Fall faced the question. Um, there was this agreement, Belfast Agreement. Either they would sign it, and with it, they would sign away the Irredentist claim. Um, in return, they would get benefits, such as the Council of Ireland. Council of Ireland, Irish nationalists always hoped that this, this institution that would bind North, Northern Ireland and Southern Ireland together would be the nucleus for reunification. Um, so they could, they could say yes to that, to that, to that, uh, to that Good Friday Agreement, um, or they could, they could oppose it, but if they would oppose it, then they could keep their identity claim, but they could definitely not, um, not get the benefits of that, of that agreement. And what is interesting then to see is that it's really those actors who shared the reference criterion, and Fianna Fáil came to share the reference criterion in the early 1990s, um, they were actually swayed by public opinion, and they were eager to reach a compromise with the advocates, and eager to reach a compromise in the international arena with the United Kingdom and Northern Ireland. And those who did not share the, the reference criterion, independent Fianna Fáil, for example, they did not care about the costs inflicted by their advocacy. They did not care that more than 90% actually in the referendum said, uh, said yes, let's, let's, uh, let's get rid of that irredentist claim. They simply stuck to it. Um, let me briefly summarize my, my argument. What I contended now is that if a number of conditions are met, states select norms in three ideal typical stages. Innovative argumentation, persuasive argumentation, and compromise. And I think there are a couple of added values of that of the norm selection mechanism. Um, most importantly, um, I looked inside the states. I didn't black box the states. One of my central findings really is that, that public <coughs> opinion matters. Um, another one, I elaborated on what it actually means to have a fit between the old and the new. So I elaborated on how persuasion works. And, uh, and finally, I suggested a way of combining logics of action, combining logic of consequences, a compromise, and combining the logic of appropriateness, innovative argumentation, persuasive argumentation. Mm -hmm. That's fine. 
No, I agree with you, and I don't really have an answer to that. <clears throat> um, what, I, what I do is there's, there's a big picture here with this, this argumentation, with the reference criterion and, and the link and, and, and the top boy and, and the advocated idea. Um, I really deal only with a very small portion of it. I only deal with, with how advocates construct the link between those top boy and the, and, the, and the advocated idea. There's a bigger picture than that. The bigger picture is how does actually the reference criterion evolve over time? And how are these parts of the reference criterion interconnected? Um, and, I, and consciously I left that out because I, I wanted to concentrate on, on, on how persuasion works. Um, in my next project, I'd, li I'd, like to, I'd like to deal with that. And this is, I think, where, where economics, amongst other things, comes in. So for example, the, the um, understanding why there was such a, such a profound transformation between exclusive identity and from exclusive identity to inclusive identity really requires to look at economics. Um, because you're right, I mean, the, 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 the Republic of Ireland has profited immensely from the European Union, for example. So I cannot necessarily look at, look at um, public opinion data about the European Union and then, and then infer from that that, uh, that, that the Irish are, the, are a very, very Europhile nation. They also profited from it in a big, in big way. Um, two, I mean, two, two answers about that. With a with with typology, um, I think we, it, it's definitely those two, revolutionary events and, and reference code, and not something like independent variables, because clearly they can intertwine. So for example, one thing that I could imagine is that, um, that a cognitive punch um, does something to the episteme. Um, and uh, and in, that way, in that way, those two are by no means independent from one another. So, that again would go back into getting getting outside that the little box of my of my current argument, which I think is justified by just just focusing on that on that persuasion how it actually works, would would, would require to get out of that 
and, uh, and look um, at how these, these three parts of the reference criterion interact and how they interact, amongst other things, with a cognitive punch, with a revolutionary event. And the second one, um, with the, with the compromise, I mean, <clears throat> I do not want to make an argument here that compromise is only possible if, uh, if, you, if you have a shared reference criterion. Um, the, kind of, uh, the kind of impetus that I have for the compromise derives from argumentation. So it derives from, from what people think is a strong argument. And this kind of impetus, I think, is way, way, way weaker then let's say if someone, if someone points a gun to me and says, are you, gonna willing, are, you, are you willing to compromise? So I do not want to push this, this, um, this, this notion of the compromise too far. All I want to say really is that, that the power of an argument is twofold. It is, it's about persuasion, and it's also about swaying. And, uh, and that swaying happens, I think, through a, through a compromise. Okay. That's a good question. I mean, and, and maybe I should specify that more than I do. In my empirical research, um, I dealt with Ireland and I dealt with Germany, and those two cases very straightforward. Because really, in terms of the, the 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 big the big punches, the big revolutionary events in the German case was the construction of the Berlin Wall when it comes to when it comes to, to territorial issues, and right after that, the advocacy started, and. Um, and with regard to Ireland, when one looks at the discourse, then the big revolutionary event that's always been referred to again and again and again, and that's the Troubles, and especially Bloody Sunday, and there are films about it, and there are books about it, and so on and so forth. So in that way, it was quite, it was quite, uh, quite easy for the, for the research that I did. But I do see your point. I mean, if I, if I, um, um, I, I don't know, if I, if I look at another case, then I might, I might end up with five possibilities for a revolutionary event, and, and, uh, and then I can pick and choose how it fits my framework. That's true. Maybe I should, yeah, maybe I should think about more how to, how to put it, how to define it, actually. Or just maybe think a little bit more about what makes an event a revolutionary rather than mm -hmm. an Um, with the persuasion, the sequencing, I don't have a perfect answer to that at all. Um, because obviously what I do is, is, a, is a simplification. 
I mean, when I when I look at my at my empirical research, then uh, then there is uh, let's say a political party becomes persuaded, then uh, then I do see that lots of people actually become persuaded. And I talk to them, um, but there are also people within that political party who don't become persuaded, but but they are as I would as I would refer to it, they compromise. They they're simply swayed by the majority opinion in a political party. And, um, but nevertheless, in the whole grand scheme that I, that I, that I outlined, there is three stages. This is persuasion stage. Um, so clearly, I mean, those, those, those three, they're not real types. If I, would, if I would understand them as real types, my whole argument would, would fall apart totally. So it's a heuristic device that, that, I, that, I, that, I, that I think is already quite, quite complex, those, those three stages. And, um, and that's, that's, why, that's why I went for it. But they are definitely not real types. There's also, another, another, another thing about it that I, that, I, that I discovered in my empirical research, it's not that everyone bends because he or she is, is, um, enters some kind of a compromise. Some simply remain quiet and, 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 uh, and, um, and some simply stop opposing without, without getting, getting anything in return for it. Um, but I, but my, my attempt is really to do it with ideal types and, and, and to have some kind of a heuristic device to make sense of this whole process. And, um, and the other one with the generational de replacement, um, I think it's the, it's the um, if, I, if I think about the Irish case, yes, to some extent I think that's true, that's what happened. Um, I think, I think uh, thinking about, um, about identity change, thinking about epistemic change, um, the younger generations had a different view than the older generations. That again is is uh, is about the evolution of that reference criterion, which I'm hesitant to to uh, to deal with at the moment. Because if I if I deal with that at the moment, then I have this whole big picture, and uh, and then and then um, then I have then I have a, a big argument maybe about about how epistemes relate and how how identities relate and everything. But it's going to be difficult for me to combine this with with a, with a with a sustained focus on persuasion. I think. No, I couldn't. I couldn't. But um, but I mean, f judging from my from my from my interviews and everything, it was really people. Very much actually how I, how I put it down with those three modes of reasoning. So if I talk to people who actually were who I thought were the advocates, and I, I wrote to them because I thought they were the advocates, they actually really exp I mean explained this to me those, as as I did it with these three circles, and um, and, the, and the combination of of, of the topoi and the, and, the, and, the, and the reference criterion. Whereas those who were swayed later on, they, um, they gave me bits and pieces here and there, actually echoing what I saw in public discourse is that those who get swayed, they don't advocate themselves. And um, so I, I do think that there's something about, I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't explain everything there with, with generation. There's, I mean, there, right. I mean, there's some of it in my in my, in my research. There's some there's some some overlap in this. I do I do um, I did some research on how the nationalist community in Northern Ireland saw this problem and everything. Um, but I was really concerned about, in terms of my, my research question: How do states select norms? And then I looked inside a state, and I was, in a way, if you want to put it, quite legalistic about this. I mean, the state, Republic of Ireland, and I didn't, and. Um, and, and I think there's also, when you, when you look at the discourse, there's a difference here. I mean, the, the, the discourse in, in, uh, in Northern Ireland, simply because there are, there are violent clashes between nationalists and unionists all the time, discourse among nationalists is, is a bit more radical than, than, uh, than, than in the Republic of Ireland. And, um, and there, I mean, there were feedback mechanisms, no question about it. So, for example, one of them was that Fianna Fáil always thought um, 
that the nationalists absolutely do not want that Irredentist claim to be renounced because they would, they would, they would think that they, they are forgotten and so on and so forth. That was one, one argument in the, amongst the, amongst the counter-advocates. And then, and then David Hume, starting in the 1970s, basically the leader of the, of the nationalists in Northern Ireland, did have some impact on, on, um, on the discourse in the Republic of Ireland. But, but all in all, I think it's, 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 um, it's, it's one can see it distinct from, from the Republic distinct from Northern Ireland in that regard. Um, can you elaborate on what you mean by the rules of the game? Well, politics is a game. I mean, it's a sense of that certain rules. Mm-hmm. It's not entirely rule-bound. Mm-hmm. Rules change all the time. Who, who gets to play? What type of game you're playing? I mean, you, it's like, I don't, I don't know a lot about the, the Irish game, but the Cold War, you could say, one, you know, what Gorbachev did is he just changed the game. He refused to play. Mm-hmm. But what I'm saying is that you're not looking at Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, the, the part of my part of the, the trouble with my research is that I try to combine two logics of action, and and, and by doing that, I usually, I mean, the rationalists, I and I, I don't make very happy. The, the constructivists, I sometimes don't make very happy either. Um, I think, I mean, that, that's probably, I mean, that would be one lens to look at, a, a much more rationalist one. Um, I deal with alternative explanations, rationalist explanations in my in my in my paper. I don't know whether whether you'd be you'd be happy with them or I do it. But um, um, yeah, so one, 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 one of, the, one of the, the rationalist explanations, for example, that is that it's all about the, the, the Belfast Agreement. Um, so there was something offered to the Republic and therefore it yielded. That didn't make much sense to me because the big shift in public opinion occurred way before that, 1992. Mm-hmm. Um, the, with the, with the one, one clarification, what I mean with the territorial status quorum, and I should have said that straight away. Um, I mean by that that states, uh, states ought not to claim territory anymore de jure. They might still aspire to, unify, to, to unification, but they, they may not claim it de jure anymore. So they may, they may not say anymore that, legally speaking, this is my territory. And in the German case, it's in the early 1970s that the Federal Republic renounced those, those claims. So they said, legally speaking, fine, we still, we still, we still aspire to do it. I think so, definitely. I mean, from, I mean from, from, from my research, I really think so. I think one of the arguments, with the, with the, the, the rationalist argument, with that over time it becomes, 
one of the reasons why, why it doesn't really convince me is because there's I mean, two, two reasons. I mean, when we just look at the Irish case, let's say, it's so long, I mean, it's decades, 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 over half a century that the claim is being made. And um, it doesn't, I mean, at least on the, on the surface of it, it doesn't strike me why precisely 1998 people think that it's not worth it anymore. And um, another, another thing, if we look in the Eridentist, Eridentist literature, um, Eridentist claims how it was in, 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 in history, then there were lots and lots of Eridentist claims from the mid-19th century onwards. And um, basically none of these were resolved peacefully. And uh, states went to war with one another, even asymmetric, asymmetric warfare. Small states attacked big states. Uh, Montenegro, um, Ottoman Empire, and all of these things. And it's, all, it's only then after the Second World War, more precisely actually from the, from the late 1960s onwards in Europe, that all these disputes get peacefully resolved. And this is why I think that in terms of the overall pattern, I think there's more to it. There's something more profound than, uh, than material interest. Patrick, but 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 I but no, but I but I But, but I, 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 but I mean, being German, I can't really follow the conversation now. Um, the, the, I mean, me, <laughs> me, me sitting at school, I mean, I learned it all the time. I mean, this is what Germany used to be, and this is what it ought to be again. And, and, and there were rituals about this. I mean, the 17th of, of uh, what was it, 17th of um, June, um, the national holiday and, and, and everything. And, and there were rituals about this all the time. And, and, uh, and, uh, and uh, I mean, one thing I think that, that in, in, the, in the German case quite peculiar is that all these expellees who were expelled from the Eastern territories, um, they were very, very well organized in the, in, the, in the 1960s, 1970s, to some extent they still are. And they always held these memories alive to the extent that there were, there were debates whether one should actually have these memories held alive or not. Um, because, because having them held alive might actually contribute to a revanchistic um, foreign policy at some stage. So I'm not, I'm not, I'm not sure whether, 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 whether the Germans were actually all against, against, against unification. And I mean, the whole, I mean, the, the biggest, the biggest debates ever in the West German Parliament in, in, in Bonn um, were about the ratification of these, of these, these treaties about, about renunciation um, of those, of those territories. I think I think it was a big, really a big, big issue, and and. Uh I think the 90 percent. I mean, the the the, the Irish the, the the Irish press, one of the one of the the big national newspapers, put it like that. Um, the public mood has changed, and we have to match to match the public mood. And I cannot explain. I think those 90 percent um, with my methods. I cannot explain the 90 percent in terms of persuasion. 
What I think I can do is I can say that in 1995 there was something like two-thirds in favor, and there were still no benefits of, uh, of, the, of the Belfast Agreement in sight. And uh, in 1992, the peace process hadn't even started, at least, not, at least it hadn't produced anything tangible yet. And, and there was a majority of the public opinion. So I think those are the, the problems for, for a rationalist explanation. What I really want to argue is about the Irish people. I really want to say that they got persuaded of something. Relevant social actors and the public got persuaded of something. And who did it um, in, in, uh, in both the cases I studied? It's intellectuals, um, it's politicians, it's journalists. You know, I mean, there's, I mean, there's in, the, in, in the UK, there's a lot of debate about let's get rid of Northern Ireland because it just costs a hell of a lot. In, 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 in the Republic of Ireland, I haven't, I haven't, I haven't discovered much about, about it. I mean, there are some voices saying, um, saying at the, and on, the, on, the left, on the left margin of the political spectrum, saying, well, it would cost a lot and, and, uh, and why, why, actually, why actually engage in it. But I didn't, I didn't, I didn't find it useful. But that's right. Yeah. Yeah. I think many of South Koreans now don't really want to be free people. Mm -hmm. It's just a gambling reason. And I was wondering how much of this trend is explained by the set up for North and South Korea. That's interesting. I mean, if you know something about the, the South Korean case, I'd be very, very happy if we could have a chat about it on stage today. In the, in the German case, I mean, the, 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 I mean, you're right. I mean, it's after reunification that they, that they, they suddenly discovered, oh, it costs a lot, and all these terrible Easterners, all these terrible Westerners. Um, but before that, there was, non, there was no such thing. I mean, there was the, 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 the dream that everything would, would flourish automatically, basically. Um, but there was no debate whatsoever about the costs. I mean, in the, in the electoral campaign in the, in the early 1990s, maybe a tiny little bit, um, but uh, but with, with, whole, with the whole um, propaganda machinery, basically, in favor of unification, there, there, there wasn't. So it was really, I think it was really ideas that, 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 that brushed aside the, the material component to, to a considerable degree. We've had this conversation before. I was discussing when Mark has presented his paper at ISA. I want to know what you mean by that, right? Because there are, there are ideal type methodologies. And when you sort of say, in response to questions about whether the sequence holds up, right, whether there's a sequence at all, right, or whether or not the, um, the categories themselves aren't, you know, interactive in a way that sort of vitiates their categorization by saying, but it's an ideal type. I mean, maybe it's not a good ideal type <laughs> would be the answer, right? And then there's the question of, you know, sort of how do you, I mean, just how do you conceive of ideal type? Because I have an idea in my mind about what we do when we do ideal type methodology. I'm not sure it's the first one. Okay. The second is, um, I wonder if a lot of the framing in terms of logic sort of apart from this logic and consequences, rationalism versus uh, constructivism, sociologicalism, whatever. To me, there's something, there's a sort of disconnect that's emerging here because the logic of consequence and logic of preference are basically sort of very simple models of 
actor A has some beliefs and then he does something, right? And the beliefs could be, you know, an, a, a sort of deontological norm, right? It's not right for me to kill, therefore I shouldn't kill. Or they could be beliefs about uh, preferences and the likely actions of others, right? But it's, a, it's an individual's account. A has a belief and A acts on that belief, right? And the belief is then the variable of whether or not it's, dis it's, a, it's described and consequences of Darby's terms that then causes that action. The domain you're interested in, right, is the domain of shifting beliefs, right, and it's the domain of, you know, intersubjective norms, that is, uh, developing kind of commonplaces about a certain, about sort of, it's about the development of kind of commonplaces of the territorial status quo norm, which may or may not be internalized, right, which may or may not reflect strong beliefs, they could reflect sort of a, this is, you know, a organized hypocrisy about societal consensus. Uh, and so is it really the appropriateness consequences logic that, that, that you want to be mediating between, or are you doing something else? Are, are you interested in sort of a different set of processes and a different sets of logics of action that have to do with persuasion, that are dialogical rather than monological altogether? Mm -hmm. um. That there's one, there's one theory about persuasion that I haven't dealt with, is near exposure theory, and Daniel has just uh, falsified it because I expose him to my theory so often he still isn't fully convinced. But um, the, the two, the two things about about the ideal types, and and, and I, I mean, I think I think I use them basically as as Weber does, and and uh, so saying um, world is complex, and there are real types, and there are ideal types, and um, and I think if one uses ideal types, then it's important. I have to. I have to. I mean, I have to. I'm, let, me, let me do it. Let me do it with an example. Okay, at the um, at the conference. I mean, at the, at the systems conference, a couple of people I think were here. Um, there was one paper um, by Goodman and, and Jinks that dealt with micro foundations, and um, and also they too. I mean, were pushed into 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 making things a little bit easier because they have an idea about persuasion, they have an idea about acculturation, and so on and so forth. And somehow. We know, we know that all of this happens at the same time, but somehow we have to disentangle it in order to make sense of it. And I think it's fine to disentangle it in an ideal, typical way. I think it's time to say, it's fine to say, um, this is a heuristic device and I'm simplifying things. At the same time, I think, uh, we should make clear that we do simplify things. And, um, and about the second one, the logics, the logics of action, um, I mean, you're right. I mean, I'm not, I'm not, um, I mean, I, I, I just wanted to present it in a, in a, in a straightforward way. Uh, the compromise, strictly speaking, is probably not, not the logic of consequences um, and the innovative argumentation and the persuasive argumentation is not, is not logic of appropriateness proper. Logic of appropriateness proper, I'm, I'm, I'm just very, I, I, I'm, I'm quite skeptical about it because, uh, because it basically it's quite deterministic to me. Um, so what I, what I try to do is to say basically there is an environment out there, there are ideas out there, but it's up to actors to make something out there. It's up to actors to put them together in a way that makes sense to them and to convey their message in one way or another. And this message, given that environment in which they work in, may resonate with an audience or not. And uh, it's, not, it's, not, it's not a, a logic of, of argumentation either, as Risse suggested, because uh, because Risse obviously is Habermasian and, and says uh, this, is, this is basically how, how, uh, how an ideal speech situation works in, in international politics. And he says, well, it exists. It's not, that's not the, the kind of avenue that I take at all. Because um, I, I mean, th this kind of framework, I mean, that's not, that's not necessarily something fantastic that comes out of it in terms of the, the, the overall, the overall uh, result. Um, can be, I mean, you can think of advocacy that advocate terrible things, and, and those terrible things uh, resonate at some stage. And, um, and one of the things that I postulate was that the privileged access to the discourse really matters, which for Habermasian obviously is, is, a, is a normative no go. Mm -hmm. In the facto sense, 
I think what's at stake is if one looks at your identity disputes um, and at the pattern of your identity disputes, then, uh, then those who get resolved in a, or settled, maybe I should say, in a way as the Irish did, um, no legal claim anymore, only aspiration, um, they are way, I mean, the, 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 kind of, the kind of interstate interaction assumes a totally different quality. So if we think about, let's say, um, let's say if we would apply this kind of framework to, to Palestine and Israel, and, uh, and I don't know, and the Palestinians would say, um, this is Temple Mount and we aspire to, to, to have it as part of our territory, but legally speaking, it's yours. Then I think part of, the, of, of what makes the conflict very volatile would be gone. Or if, if Pakistan would, would, uh, would say, um, Yamu and Kashmir, that's, that's, uh, that's, that's legally speaking, India, that's, 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 that's yours. But maybe I can maybe I can learn something from from looking at those evidentist evidentist claims um, to something something uh, something where where the situation is way more volatile. Perhaps because it might be much easier to adopt the formal status quo norm if you've been following that norm in practice for 50 years anyhow. All you're doing is acknowledging the reality that yes, we do Yeah, but I don't. I mean, I mean, I don't. I don't think that that is. I think there is a difference. I mean, let's say for, for the union for the unionists, there was a hell of a difference. That uh, if one if one if, if, if uh, when when Dublin said um, it's not under any circumstance that you have to come into this into the state because legally speaking it's ours anyway, but it's only if you want to. So it really had had repercussions for for the conflict in Northern Ireland. Actually, made the, the Belfast Agreement possible with all its faults. Or in the German case. Um, the um, renunciation of all these claims, I think, in the Cold War context, was quite important. I mean, if, if Germany wouldn't have renounced them, then maybe maybe Helsinki would have looked a little bit different, or would have happened a little bit later, or something along those lines. So I thank a lot for your comments. Just one more thing. The paper I sent was way too late because I was sick. Um, if, if anyone wants to read it, I mean, it should be in your email now. I'd be very happy about any kinds of comments that you have. And thanks a lot for your comments. Daniel, you made me sweat. <laughs> Sorry. No, 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 that's good. You should, um...